Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome once again to A More Perfect Union. Today, Jeff Roy has scoured the length and breadth of our state to find us a wonderful guest, Senator Eric Lesser. Jeff, along with Natalia, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Chris Wolf, Nick Remesong, the whole gang is interested to hear what he has to say. Well, excellent. Pete, thank you very much. And uh, Eric, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Uh, on Franklin Public Radio, our show is a, a more perfect union, and we try to talk about ways uh, that we can uh, make this uh, this uh, state and this uh, this country a more perfect union. And uh, uh, and part of that is to talk to the candidates who are running off running for office and and who have that as a goal. And let me just tell you a little bit about uh, Eric. He first ran uh, for the state senate in 2014, and uh, he was elected on his vision to confront the opioid epidemic, create high-tech manufacturing jobs, and advocate for a bold new idea, and that's high-speed passenger rail between Pittsfield, Springfield, and Boston to finally uh, tie a Commonwealth together. And, uh, you know, we're getting close on that, and I know that uh, Eric will probably talk about that today. Uh, I have had the pleasure of uh, co-chairing the Manufacturing Caucus uh, of the Massachusetts legislature with uh, Eric. I think we've been doing this together for the last five or six years. And uh, we uh, have been committed to the idea that uh, uh, great products are, are developed here and designed here and they should be made here as well. Uh, Eric was born in the Queens in New York and he was uh, raised in Long, Longmeadow out in uh, Western Mass. Uh, and he went to uh, Harvard University and uh, he became one of the early staffers on Barack Obama's uh, historic 2008 presidential campaign. Uh, he started in New Hampshire during the first in the nation primary and eventually he traveled with Obama and his senior team to 47 states during the primary and general elections and ended up working in the Obama White House in multiple roles. So uh, there's a lot to say about uh, Eric. Uh, I will say at the outset that uh, I have endorsed Eric in his race uh, to be the Lieutenant Governor. So I may be a bit biased on, on the show, but uh, I, I find him to be a great colleague. I've enjoyed working with him uh, all, uh, all the years that he's been here since 2014 and uh, looking forward to continuing our work together on behalf of the Commonwealth. So with that, Eric, if you'd uh, say a little bit more, uh, Tell all the things that I left out, and please tell us why <laughs> on earth you're running for the lieutenant governor in Massachusetts. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Jeff. It's uh, it's great to be with you and to be with this great group. And uh, 
what a show. I, I, I feel confident we're going to solve all the world's problems and all the Commonwealth's problems by the end of our time together. Uh, so I appreciate you being being here and, and to invite me uh, to do this. It's, uh, it's really a great joy to do it. And greetings from uh, 495 South, uh, where I'm on my way uh, to, uh, to a series of events today. Uh, don't worry, I'm not driving, so uh, I'm, I'm safely able to participate. But uh, first, Jeff, I just really wanted to say that I'm running because I think all of us share a real pride in Massachusetts. Uh, I think all of us, I think, do feel a lot of, you know, just, just excitement about all the things happening here, the economy we have here, the innovations we have here. But there's also a growing acknowledgement and a growing sense that it's just getting really hard to live here. Uh, it's really expensive. Uh, housing prices are skyrocketing. Rents are going up. Uh, our transportation system, as you kind of alluded to, is, is really breaking down or non-existent in a lot of places. And we just need a state government that's focused on those bread and butter issues. So, you know, you and I have partnered, for example, on manufacturing work, vocational training for a long time. I think as lieutenant governor, and the reason I'm running for lieutenant governor is to just help with those quality of life, those bread and butter issues for people, getting the trains working better, getting expanded rail service to communities that right now are left out, working on our housing crisis, building more housing, trying to bring prices down for families, uh, and closing the wait list at our Vogue schools. Uh, we could create 7,000 jobs tomorrow just by closing the wait list that exist at our existing vocational schools. Uh, and so I think that as, as Lieutenant Governor, I'll be able to really work on those issues, work across different cabinet agencies, different uh, city and town uh, priorities, partner with the federal government, of course, work with the various components of state government uh, to help make that happen. So uh, excited about talking about it a little bit more with all of you. I'd like to chime in with just one quick question. You mentioned a wait list in uh, vocational schools. Uh, as, as you know, Tri-County Vocational School is located right in Franklin. It serves 11 surrounding communities. And, you know, we've been there uh, creating programs and whatnot. And, it, you know, it really strikes me that there is a great living to be made uh, by kids who go to those schools and really focus on the opportunities that they provide. And so when you speak about a wait list, I guess I'd like to know a little bit more about what that uh, means. Yeah, I know, absolutely. And, and Franklin has a, a proud manufacturing and, and vocational education tradition. Uh, I mean, the whole area around Franklin, that region, uh, has, has historically been a manufacturing center. That's part of why uh, Jeff uh, chairs the Manufacturing Caucus. So just a couple of observations. First, we have a lot of issues with how the, how the admissions work at our Vogue schools. Uh, a lot of slots are increasingly getting taken up by college-bound students. There, there's not necessarily anything wrong with that per se. Uh, and of course, we want to make sure that anyone who wants to go to college has the option to do that. But we've got to make sure that there are slots available for students that aren't going to go, go to college or who don't have college in their plan for whom a vocational education can really be truly transformative for them. My grandfather was a tool and die maker, for example. He got technical training that allowed him to raise a family of five in New York City uh, and to then uh, support kids and grandkids uh, after that. And, and I think we've got to, so number one, we've got to think about how we're allotting those slots and how we're doing those admissions. Second, uh, we've got to make sure that we're building out capacity. 
and especially where the trends are going in terms of new positions. You've got a big photonic sector uh, in, in Franklin. Uh, you've got a big medical device uh, manufacturing sector in, in Franklin and in the greater uh, Franklin area. You've got a uh, growing, um, you've got growing uh, uh, nodes around uh, robotics and, uh, and, um, and LIDAR technology for autonomous vehicles and, and other components. So we gotta make sure that we're ahead of the curve with that training and that the Vogue schools are responsive and building capacity in the places that are growing. And then we do need more equipment. We need more teachers. We need to raise the pay of the teachers to attract more people uh, into those fields. And we've got to make sure that any student that wants to get into one of these programs is able to, because we know that there are jobs on the other end of it. Almost all the employers in your area are telling us that they have open positions, but they don't have enough people coming out of the training programs with the skills uh, to take those jobs. Shame on us if we let those positions go unfilled. A lot of them are paying $30, $35, $40 an hour right off the bat. That's a good middle-class wage that allows people to buy a home, lay down roots, create stability for their families uh, and for their kids. Uh, let me uh, jump in. This is Michael Walker-Jones. And let me jump in and ask you a follow-up to that, uh, because I understand what you're saying regarding students who are looking to go to college, but I think that's one of the fallacies of in some ways, our entire education system. We believe, yep. and I, I would encourage you and all politicians and all of us who are in the media to sort of rethink our notion that you're either headed for vocation or you're headed for college. Um, because what I'm finding as I work with both industry and educators is that all learning is lifelong learning. Even if exactly. I'm in robotics, uh, I may go to a vocational school to start my uh, career, but it doesn't end there in terms of my education. Uh, and I think many students grow up with the notion that, well, I'll either go to the vocational school or I'll go to college. But then those families who are beginning to send their kids to the vocational schools are actually hitting on something that I think is the future, which is skills are going to be necessary as we move forward as a society all kinds of skills and that those skills don't limit your ability in terms of education uh so it seems to me that one of the things we ought to be talking about in terms of looking at the uh and i'd really like to know if as lieutenant governor what's your approach going to be on this because it seems to me that we need to start increasing the number of schools that offer vocational opportunities for students. Even if those opportunities come in what we might be referring to as our traditional uh, college bound um, uh, environments. So why not just, just start expanding the opportunity for students to learn skills of all types? Well, I, I appreciate you bringing this up, actually, because it's exactly in the wheelhouse of what you know Jeff and I work on in the Manufacturing Caucus. Uh, we just did a big uh, report that I, I'd encourage people to check out, a commission on the future of work. Uh, I co-chaired that effort alongside a colleague of Jeff's, uh, Josh Cutler, who's the chair of the House's Labor uh, and Workforce Committee. And exactly what you're describing, there was this quote, they, it was, we described it in the report as the quote, one and done model. Right. There had been a long period of time where people were bombarded with this idea that you had a binary choice of voc ed or college. 
And then once you got your college degree or you got that vocational certificate, you were done and you clocked into an employer for 30 years and clocked out with a retirement. The world doesn't work that way anymore. The economy doesn't work that way anymore. What we need to transition to is iterative skills-based training over time for all workers. And we need to make sure that the state is supporting people in that transition. So let me give you an example. We've done a lot of work. Uh, I've done a lot of work, and Jeff's been in part of this, around precision machining. So the, the future of that sector might not be going in for a two-year associate's degree, getting a job at a, at a local company, and then, and then staying with that same position for 30 years. Instead, what you might need is every couple of years, you go back for a 10-week or a 12-week training program to learn a new software system or to learn a new uh, uh, laser cutting technique or to learn a new piece of machinery that was, um, you know, that, was, that was retooled or that was changed to become more efficient. And then you're growing your skills over time. You're adding new skills over time. And then you're moving, very importantly, you've got to also make sure that they're moving up the income ladder as their skills improve uh, over time. Our current uh, training programs in the state are moving in that direction, but they're moving too slowly. Uh, just one other point from that report that we did that I think is striking is just to keep up with this change in technology and in society all around us, Massachusetts is going to need to retrain 30 to 40,000 workers a year, which is well over double what our current capacity is in our existing training program. So as Lieutenant Governor, I think a very specific thing I could be working on is working with our various mass hire boards, working with our various chambers of commerce, bringing together the educational institutions, the employers, the, uh, the, the, the unions and the, and, the, and the trades. They have a big role to play in this as well. Kind of make sure that everybody's working off the same sheet of music in partnership with the legislature to get these new programs developed and to get these new programs funded. And most importantly, to make sure that we're getting them implemented so that people can, uh, can benefit from them. But you're exactly right. The, the world has really changed and, it, and it's less about college degree, no college degree, associate's degree, no associate's degree, training certificate, no training certificate. And it's more about how over the course of someone's career, they're going to kind of grow and learn and build their their skills as technology changes. Thanks so much, Eric, for that. Um, this is Natalia Linas. I'm a mom of three young kids, so I'm going to take you to early, early education and, and sort of ask yeah. you a little bit about that. I know you're a parent, too. Um, for me, it seems that the pandemic has been disastrous for women in the workforce, especially, but a lot of parents in the workforce. And then, but more broadly, we started this conversation even before the, you know, the pandemic, like, what are we doing with our three-year-olds, our four-year-olds? Um, so I, I'm going to take you to the other end of the, the education yeah. <laughs> the pipeline, and, and I'd love to hear your views. Yeah, I really appreciate you bringing this up. Uh, I've got an eight-year-old, a five-year-old, and a one-year-old, and uh, you know our child care bill is more than our mortgage, and that's not unusual uh, for a lot of families. And we're in a complete state of crisis around child care, and, and in particular, early ed in Massachusetts. And you're right, it has overwhelmingly uh, uh, impacted women in the workforce and the female labor participation rates are still nowhere near where they were pre-COVID uh, and, uh, and won't be, frankly, until we get uh, until we get early at six. Just one statistic, just a high level statistic that I think really sums the, the challenge up. Uh, we, we spent a lot of time looking at this uh, in, the, in the Future of Work Commission I just mentioned. 
but the Department of Early Education and Care in Massachusetts gave a statistic to us that I thought was striking. There are about 750,000 children uh, under the age of 14 in Massachusetts that either have a, a single parent household or a household where both parents work. The reason why the under 14 is important is because uh, kids under that age need some type of supervision even after the school day is over, right? So even if they're in third or fourth or fifth grade, you know, the school day ends at 2.45 or so, three o'clock, and then, you know, most people are working long past 3 p.m. So they, they need, you need coverage gaps for the school-age kids as well. So total from, you know, newborn to, to, to uh, 14, 750 young people, there are total in Massachusetts about 240,000 licensed child care slots. That includes everything. That includes subsidized, that includes Head Start, that includes private, that includes home-based care. So 240,000 slots for potentially 750,000 in demand. So no wonder you have this sort of hunger game system of people trying to find slots. And then the other piece of this that's very important is we have got to invest in the workforce. We need to pay early educators more. We need to lift that profession up it's not a coincidence that the pay is so low and also highly correlates with the fact that the sector is disproportionately female, uh, disproportionately women of color and immigrants who work in those sectors. Um, so we need to do a lot more to bring up the pay uh, to help with better training, more support, uh, more, more uh, wraparound support for the workforce. And I do think that that will help because you're going to then bring more people into the profession which will help with the with the um, with the capacity issues, and then we've got to um, do that in a way that doesn't continue to put price, more higher prices on families. One more striking statistic: the average family in Massachusetts is paying eight thousand dollars more than the national median childcare. So what that means is, if somebody, if a company is trying to hire someone, the family might want to move to Massachusetts. They're they're looking at the their bills and they're getting a quote for childcare services and they're saying, holy cow, this is a lot more expensive than in New Hampshire or Florida or Rhode Island or, or, or really anywhere else or one of the most expensive anywhere. Uh, and that's, that's really damaging too. Well, you know, with the increase in revenue from taxes, and I'm going to throw this question out to you and to Jeff, then why doesn't the, our state legislature, and I hope you as, as lieutenant governor, look at, since the feds won't do it, look at Massachusetts, which has always been a state leader in terms of some of the innovative programs. Why doesn't the state look at trying to subsidize uh, or provide the level of support for families uh, when it comes to child care? Uh, so that we can not only expand the number of slots, but also make it more reasonable and affordable for families all across the Commonwealth. Jeff, do you want to take that first? I'm, I'm happy to dive in, but I, it's your show, so I defer to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's all of our shows. We're all trying to create this more perfect union. But, uh, you know, just uh, briefly, I'll say, you know, these are things that, uh, that we look at very carefully. And uh, early childhood education and early childhood care uh, is something that, uh, you know, we uh, have been uh, pushing for years. And I know that uh, uh, Chair Peich and... Uh, 
uh, who's who's on the Senate side uh, with the Education Committee? Jason Lewis. Yeah, they they did some. Uh, they they had a commission that looked at these issues and uh, have come across with uh, landmark pieces of legislation to address uh, the the needs uh, for early childhood education and and child care. And uh, we are trying to uh, you know fund as many programs, offer incentives such as. Uh, student loan reimbursement for folks that get uh, involved in these occupations, any ways that we can uh, to attract and retain uh, workers in this space. And, uh, you know, we're not done yet. We still will continue down this path. We uh, do have uh, additional monies available uh, to focus on these areas, but I can tell you uh, we need to focus on a tremendous amount of areas. So uh, I'll leave that uh, the rest of that to uh, to uh, Eric and uh, take it away. No, I th well, I think it's a very important point. Um, this is the thing I would say is first, we have done a lot uh, and there's going to be a lot record, hundreds of millions more, uh, for example, in the rate reserve for early ed in the budget we're doing now. Uh, and we've also put a record money in uh, from the from the of the rescue money that we got from COVID. But the issue is actually deeper than, than just money because there's a, there's a supply challenge and a demand challenge. So if you provide the subsidy for, for, for services, which is important to do, but there are no services, meaning there aren't enough teachers, there aren't enough physical classrooms and buildings, uh, you're, you're not really solving the, the challenge. So what we need to be doing is supporting uh, the um, the consumer, meaning the parents and the and the children, with more aid to be able to afford the care. But we also need to be looking at the supply issue, which is the number of teachers we've got, the quality of the jobs. You know, we we have a lot of uh, of early ed uh, early educators that leave the field because Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks pay more right now uh, than what a lot of our early ed providers uh, get paid. So we've got to move them at the same time, we've got to we've got to get more teachers in by improving the pay, improving the quality of the work, improving their protections. We've got to work with our community colleges and other training centers. I've been involved, for example, with an effort in, at Hoyle Community College to create a new uh, pipeline uh, for training new teachers uh, to take on uh, these slots. So, Jeff mentioned the uh, the student loan reimbursements. This is a field that does not pay very well, but does require a lot of training and a lot of certifications that are very expensive to get. Uh, if we could help, for example, with student loan uh, reimbursements for people that enter the field, uh, you know, that can also help with the demand. So, you know, I just, I think people need, and I think the role I can play as Lieutenant Governor is helping us think about these various components. Because remember that statistic I, I shared, which is we have 240,000 Slots for 750,000 people. So the key is, is how do we get that 240,000 slots up to more like 800,000 slots so that there's a little bit of wiggle room? And that's workforce training, that's recruiting more teachers, that's building out more physical classroom space, uh, and and uh, and that and that's a, that's a, that's a challenge that's not going to be solved in a day. Um, that's going to take really focused engagement and resources over some period of time. So, Eric, we've uh, focused a lot on some of these heavy uh, policy issues. I just wanted to um, just maybe shift a little bit and uh, and get us into into your life. Uh, tell us about what it was like working in the Obama 
White House. You did multiple roles in the White House. You worked with David Axelrod. You were in the West Wing. I'd love to hear something about that. And do include your seven seasons uh, as a consultant to HBO's Veep, because we want <laughs> a little bit about that, too. So give us a, some example of your, uh, your background and experience in government. Yeah, well, I appreciate that, Jeff. So my, uh, my first job, my kind of big break working for President Obama at the time he was a senator, this was back in 2007, uh, my big break was carrying his suitcases all around New Hampshire, uh, as you mentioned during the first in the nation primary. Uh, and from there, uh, I was I joined him as part of the kind of traveling team uh, that went all over the country during the primary and general election. We uh, ended up going to 47 states and six countries together. And um, my, my claim to fame was I never once lost the bag. So uh, Senator Obama used to joke that Lester could deliver. <laughs> but, uh, but it was an incredible experience, you know, seeing the entire country especially through the lens of such a historic presidential campaign. Uh, I, was, I was there, I was helping, helping get, the, get things arranged and loaded and unloaded when he gave his, his famous speech on race relations at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. Uh, I was there for his uh, Democratic nomination uh, speech in Charlotte uh, for all of the presidential debates. Um, and then worked, you know, very closely uh, in in the West Wing. I was worked as the assistant to David Axelrod during during some of the some of the fun Obama years uh, when the Affordable Care Act was passed. Uh, worked on the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Uh, worked really closely with Elizabeth Warren and her senior team on the passage of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And it was it was just a great honor to be there. I, I met LeBron James. I met the starting lineup of the Red Sox. You know, you just fly on the wall. Working at the White House is, is definitely a great honor, but honestly, I was eager to get home. Uh, and part of the reason I wanted to get home was all the things we're, we've discussed. Uh, you know, Washington D.C. You know, it can be a bit of a game show down there. Uh, the issues are just very abstract and very divided and very polarized. I wanted to get back to my home community in Western Mass that had, frankly, really fallen behind uh, in, in recent years. A lot of parts of Massachusetts, you know, really boomed with high tech and life sciences investments, uh, Western Mass, at least my area and the greater Springfield area did not, did not see those same benefits. So, um, you know, came home and, uh, and dove into a, a race for, for state Senate. I was 29 at the time and uh, won by 192 votes. So <laughs> you learn never to take anything for granted uh, when you win by 100, 192 votes. And, uh, Working for Veep, I don't know if there if anyone on the on this show is a is a Veep fan, but uh, after I wrapped up my time at the White House, uh, I was actually registering for classes for law school, and a friend of mine who uh, did did a lot of work with um, kind of script writing and, and show and, and different show development for shows that kind of are about government or history or politics. Uh, she called me up. She was working on this project for HBO and said, "Hey, would you be interested in helping out?" And I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. I said, yes, uh, that was right after the first pilot had uh, been put together. Ended up working for, for seven seasons on it. And uh, the joke we used to say is, I don't know, for people who are West Wing fans, uh, that the West Wing was such a great show because it, it was sort of what we all hoped politics could be. And Veep was a great show because it unfortunately showed what we were afraid it actually is, uh, which, which is a, a little bit of a chaotic so it was, it was good to poke fun, and uh, it, was, it was really a fun, a fun group to work with. So, Eric, I want to jump in and say that you know I love your story about the the suitcase. I also started 
early on in my 20s, early 20s, I was I worked at the UN and I was the speechwriter for Helen Clark, the former prime minister of New Zealand. And I remember being with her in Morocco. Oh, wow. She was she was refusing to leave the hotel to go meet with the king until she got her coffee. And nobody at the hotel was getting us a coffee. And she thanks me from then on. I walked into the kitchen, I, you know, in the restaurant, I sort of told them to move aside in my broken Arabic and made her coffee. And from then on, the only thing she remembers about me, even though I wrote speeches and talking points and, uh, you know, <laughs> meetings, was that I got her coffee in Morocco when nobody else was getting her coffee. So, you know, with that note, you know, That's I think awful. a lot of young people um, want to enter politics and you did succeed, you know, at 29 to be one of the youngest. I, I assume you're maybe the youngest lieutenant governor running. Can you share a little bit about, you know, what does it take to to enter politics or, you know, what what would you advise someone? I have been impressed by the youth movement, especially on the climate front, on structural racism being, you know, much more present. And I'm talking about not just the 18 and 19 year olds who can vote, but also the 12, 13, 14 year olds who are right there pushing for us to do better. So you know, any, any and the uh, sixty-year-olds, or... Natalia. Don't forget oh, the young sixty-year-olds. <laughs> the young sixty-year-olds too, Jeff. Um, <laughs> but what, what you know? What? How? How do you feel that Massachusetts, you know, future and and sort of the youth and the politics and how how should be, how should people get involved without getting completely disillusioned by a lot of the yeah. actually the harshness too? Well, I first I love your story. That's awesome. Uh, and it all worked out. You got the coffee, but it worked out. So it, sometimes it shows we've got to kind of check our pride at the door, right, and just get done what needs to get done. <laughs> so that's always an important life lesson. Uh, but um, so just, you know, a couple of things on this, because I just think it's so, so important. So first, um, and I really learned this from, uh, from President Obama. He uh, was an incredible boss in the sense that I have no memory really ever. And I worked for him for more than four years through, through a presidential campaign, through, through the White House, through some very, very intense moments. I never once saw him uh, raise his voice, uh, which is just remarkable when you think about what was thrown at him and the, the adversity he had to overcome. And he had just a deep, a very, very deep and really inspiring just view of history, uh, which allowed him to shrug a lot off in the sense that there are ups, there are downs, but is the general direction going in the right, in the right, in the right way, right? And, um, and I think that that's just something that's important to remember now. And it's just such a challenging time. It feels like the world is closing in on us. Horrific news, you know, horrific situation in Buffalo. We see the the, the pending doom really around climate change and our and our inability as a society to truly reckon with that but uh but we have to kind of maintain a positive approach uh or or we're not going to we're not going to be able to move forward uh and so something i would really encourage young people to do is to get involved locally uh the the first time i ever got involved in politics or really did anything political i was 16 and i was a junior at my public high school in longmeadow uh, which is a, a town West of Franklin, as, as Jeff mentioned, in, in Western Massachusetts. And the principal called an assembly and gathered, packed all of us into the auditorium, lined a whole bunch of teachers up at the front of the room, several dozen actually, and told us that they were not coming back next year because of budget cuts that had been made, local aid cuts that had been made at the state house. Uh, and I remember sitting there and just feeling really angry and really powerless uh, and really feeling like it was pretty unfair frankly, that 14 and 15 and 16-year-olds were being asked to pay the price for bad decisions, frankly, that had been made somewhere else. Uh, so we went out and we organized. We did something called a Prop Two and a Half Override campaign. I'm sure, I'm sure that's been a topic of uh, conversation with, with this group in the 
past. But you know, we we knocked on doors, we handed out leaflets, we stood in front of the grocery stores, uh, and I remember sitting in the town hall uh, the night of the vote uh, as the clerk was counting the ballots. Uh, you know, New England town, they they were counting by hand the ballots, uh, but um. Uh, I remember a woman was sitting next to me who was clutching a pink slip. And when the vote was announced as having passed, uh, she ripped the pink slip up in relief because the vote passing and her job had been saved. And I honestly just feel really grateful for having had that experience because it kind of showed me that despite all of the messiness and the frustrations of politics, it really is one of the most powerful ways uh, to make a difference. And I think getting engaged, getting involved locally uh, is really a great way to get started and a great way to see change in front of in front of your eyes much faster. Um, and then and then and then make it to Morocco, right? Who are working for the UN. Uh, but I, I think um, I think a lot of people sometimes feel kind of paralyzed almost by the magnitude of the challenges that are in front of us. I, I certainly feel that way sometimes. You see the issues of climate, you see the issues of racial justice and civil rights. We see the issues with an economy that's increasingly out of whack and out of balance. We see the issues with COVID, you know, continuing to linger. And I think it can be kind of paralyzing if you try to solve it all at once. You just got to get started and get in there. And I think a great way to do that is getting involved in your community, in your neighborhood, in your town, in your city, and doing that first. Eric, this is uh, Chris Wolf, a uh, local author um, and former BBC journalist. And um, as you probably are well aware, uh, Massachusetts has a habit of uh, returning Republican governors and lieutenant governors. And I was wondering how you feel about uh, working uh, across the aisle, given there is an increasingly popular image of Republicans as, well, I hate to characterize it as both sides are characterizing each other as as monsters in a sense. And it's like increasingly hard for ordinary people who support one party to be able to even think about talking to family members, for example, who have gone to the other side. How, how, uh, how are you with working across the aisle? Well, I'm, I'm very committed to, to getting things done. I mean, part of the reason why I left Washington, frankly, was I was exhausted by the trench warfare of it. And uh, what I really like about state government is that you can really kind of pull your sleeves up and just work uh, collaboratively uh, and just work on getting things done. Uh, you know, the, the stuff we just talked about, you know, we've been talking about vocational ed, transportation. Uh, these, these are not necessarily issues that have to be, you know, red hot, hotly polarized. Um, and the, the area I represent, uh, my state Senate district, uh, I'm a progressive Democrat, uh, but I've won repeatedly in communities that President Trump won. And I didn't do it by compromising in any way my, my values or, or, or agreeing with him. Uh, I did it by focusing on, on what I kind of opened with, which is those bread and butter issues that are keeping people up at night, the cost of childcare, the cost of health care, you know, a transportation system that is strangling our economy, uh, a housing crisis that's forcing people to leave Massachusetts. I think if we just stay laser focused on the issues and push the show away, you know, the noise and the, and the kind of, and the kind of name calling, you really can get a lot done. And I've, I've worked closely with governor Baker. I've disagreed with him on a lot. And uh, Jeff and I have been in a lot of rooms with him where we've worked collaboratively on training programs on support for community colleges. I've also had many pieces of legislation that he's vetoed <laughs> and then I've worked to override those vetoes. So 
you know, my view of this is um, you keep it about the issues. Uh, you keep it about the policy. Uh, you try to keep the personality and the and the gamesmanship and the and the sort of red shirts versus blue shirts mentality out of the room. Uh, and you just try to work on getting stuff done. And I'm not particularly interested, frankly, whether a re- an idea comes from a Republican or a Democrat or, or, or none of the above. Uh, if the issue helps get kids into vocational schools, if the issue helps us bring the housing prices down so that families can afford to stay in Massachusetts, if it helps get a uh, rail built between Pittsfield, Springfield and Boston, I'm going to be I'm going to be all years. I'm going to work hard on it. Just a quick follow-up. You you used a very interesting word there for for show. So you know, obviously, I'm not from around here, as you might be able to tell from my accent. Um, but just the the scale of the rhetoric, and you know, unfortunately, some of the incidents that you know, the, the tragedy in Buffalo, the things that have been inspired by idle talk, you know, that has racist overtones and that kind of thing. Um, would you feel like you could address that if you were lieutenant governor? Or, I mean, surely it would be important to, um, yes, work across the aisle, but wouldn't you still want to um, be able to condemn uh, evil? Well, of course. And I, I mean, I think that goes without saying. And uh, you know, I, I certainly don't think that uh, working collaboratively on a, on a job training project with a, with a Republican legislator is the same thing as a, uh, as condoning the, the the horrific things we're seeing all around us, I think uh, you've got to obviously very clearly and unapologetically call out and just make clear that the rhetoric that's being used is unacceptable. And leaders need to also conduct themselves uh, in a way that keeps temperatures down rather than escalating them. I, you know, I, I'm about the work. I'm about getting the policies done. And I think part of the reason why, frankly, Governor Baker has been so popular, including with Democrats, is um, he doesn't use that kind of red hot rhetoric. He doesn't even come close to it. Uh, and, I, and I think that uh, if you just see a lot of leaders around the country that have that actually are the most popular by the by the opinion polls and by their reelection results, it does tend to be the the leaders that are more about the work. And um, you know, you could spend all day watching the cable news shows uh, or or monitoring you know quote unquote political Twitter or social media, and not once encounter you know a concrete solution to the challenges that are keeping people up at night, whether it's around climate change. Uh, or around transportation access, uh, or around education, or around civil rights. Uh, and so, you know, I think as Lieutenant Governor, one of the things I'm going to really do is I'm going to pull my sleeves up, and I'm going to work on the, on, the, on the machinery of government here, making sure the RMV is responsive, making sure that our, that our education and our tr- job training programs are delivering. And, uh, and I'm going to, you know, make sure that we're presenting a state government that's inclusive and um, and responsive to people and, and appeals to people's better angels uh, and better senses rather than uh, than people's prejudices. Senator Lessa, this is uh, Nick Remesong. Appreciate you being with us here today. I, I want to respond particularly the <laughs> the aspect of angels. I, I, I'll, I'll reach out and grab that to try and bring in something that might seem a little disjointed. But when you talk about the the reality, you know, the talk shows and everything, whether it's Democrat, Republican, Fox, CNN, whatever. I grew up in Washington, D.C., went to school there uh, in G- at George Washington, which is right down in the middle of everything. And a lot of what it came to me was it's noise. It's, it's, what, it's what we used to call woofer dust. 
Just keep the woofer dust <laughs> out there. Keep throwing it in their eyes. Keep throwing it at them. And they're all of a sudden going to believe the woofer dust is substantial. You know, has a substantive means and a substantive reason for being. Uh, but also, I want to address the part Chris brought up about uh, evil. Well, <laughs> evil crosses every line there is that exists in this world and always has. Political, racial, every line. Evil, evil is everywhere. It's a very present force. And then to kind of break down the, the aspect of stereotyping those who are being obstructive, I'm an evangelical Christian. I'm a stale, pale male. I'm a 69-year-old, you know, retired American, Caucasian. And I do not, do not follow anything that seems to be, be regarded as the majority opinion within those groups. I'm not saying that I'm standing out as a, you know, a beacon of hope. I'm just saying that we need to take individuals as they come. And I think you're right. We need to deal with everything as they come. And we need to identify and prioritize those issues, early childhood education, equity pay for women in the workforce, training in the workforce, actually stressing the, uh, the value of technical schools, Votex. When I was a kid growing up, vocational technical schools is what the way they used to be called were not highly regarded that was a you know that was for the kids who couldn't make it and that was the life that's the mindset that a lot of people still hold to you go to a vocational technical school and you failed you couldn't get into college so you had to go learn to be a carpenter and start out with no student loans and making a good site more money than the, the kid going to college who had to come out and work in a retail store for five bucks an hour at that time. So it's just a matter of taking people as we find them and also not letting the noise cancel the conversation. It's just staying in conversation with people who you disagree with or you don't have the same viewpoint with and not saying that this is evil, but it's just human nature to a certain extent. Yeah, no, couldn't couldn't agree more. I love this conversation. This is uh, this is this is not a t typical political talk show. I can tell, and, and that's why I like it. So, um, you know, I, I I do think that uh that that sentiment and that spirit is what we've got to rekindle in our politics. You know, uh, Eric, uh, I do recall in from the Federalist Papers, if uh, there's a great line in there, if men were angels, there wouldn't be any need for government, and uh, we know that's, that's <laughs> certainly not the case. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, I'm glad to uh, be a partner with you in the government that uh, tries to uh, wrangle these things together and, and, and make a good life for everyone. I know you have a very busy schedule and, and I know you have to get back out on the road, uh, but, uh, you know, wanted to give you uh, a, a final uh, a moment to, you know, tell us uh, what, what goes next. I know we have the convention coming up in June. Uh, but what are some of the next steps for you uh, in your campaign? Yeah, no, I well, I appreciate that, Jeff. And first, I, I do want to say before we say goodbye, I mean, I want to just say thank you to you for your support and your partnership over, yeah, I think six years we've been doing the Manufacturing Caucus together and uh, really have gotten a lot done. Uh, and um, you know, your community is really lucky to have you uh, as their state representative. And there's so many issues you've been involved with higher ed. 
We worked together on the longer payment for human service workers that we, we talked about earlier. Um, so just really appreciative to you uh, and to your, to your friendship and partnership. And uh, yeah, we're in a very busy uh, p- point of the campaign, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, we're about two weeks or so, a little over two weeks away from the convention, which is June 4th in Worcester. Uh, we just wrapped up our nomination papers, 10,000 signatures, so that's done. Uh, and then the primary, of course, is September 6th, which is going to be here before we know it. Uh, so uh, we're just hard at work crisscrossing the state. I'm actually in Falmouth uh, today uh, for uh, for an AFL-CIO convention uh, that's happening in Falmouth. I'm going to be in Lawrence tomorrow uh, for a series of meetings, and then I'm going to be in Amesbury on Saturday. So uh, we're just moving, moving 100 miles an hour. But uh, the f- most fun part really is just getting out and having conversations with people and learning. Uh, you really learn a lot just being out and about, uh, talk, talk with people. And, you know, if someone's listening, um, they feel like disillusioned with politics, dismayed with politics, disgusted with politics, definitely can't blame you <laughs> with the world we're in and the way things are going. Uh, but what I would say is, is it's really more important than ever that we kind of, you know, dust off our, you know, shoulders, pull up our sleeves and just get to work on the, on the, on the issues and, and kind of put our heads down and clear out the noise and get to work on those policies. And um, I, I just do hope people will give me consideration for Lieutenant Governor. And I'll, I'll kind of wrap up by saying it is a little bit of an awkward job to run for, right? Cause you're running to be the number two. Um, Massachusetts is a little bit of a unique state because we have a separate uh, elections for the primary and then you run as a ticket in the general election. Uh, but I think the set of attributes I, I bring to the table, the perspective of Western Mass, when we know so much decision-making is, is so concentrated in, in, in Beacon Hill, uh, the perspective of someone with, with high-level federal experience, when we know more than $9 billion in new infrastructure money is coming alone, just in infrastructure money to Massachusetts as a result of the Biden uh, rescue package or infrastructure bill, and the 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 real work and experience, as you've alluded to, Jeff, and that you and I have done together of, of working on some high stakes, really complicated issues, getting laws passed through the House, through the Senate, onto the governor um, is going to help me be the right partner uh, to the next governor. And because ultimately that's what it's about. The job of lieutenant governor is about being a partner to the governor and helping implement the governor's agenda. Uh, and I think I've got uh, some some things to offer. There. If people want to find out more, they can check check us out at ericlesser.com. Uh, we're also on Twitter at Eric Lesser, on Instagram at, at Eric Lesser, and on Facebook at Eric Lesser MA. I'd like to also just chime in, uh, Senator Lesser, with a couple of thoughts. This is Peter J. First of all, uh, it's been a really inspiring discussion. Uh, a lot of that inspiration coming from you. Thank you so much. Also, too, I will leave you with this notion. Pythagoras said that if you don't have the ability to describe something in terms of numbers, you really don't know very much about it at all. And I was listening intently to everything we talked about today, and you were ticking off numbers of scale and scope and detail and depth of understanding that really, really impressed me. And thank you for that. And it tells me one thing, you're doing your homework, clearly. So thank you for that as well. And my last question to you briefly is, who is the young person who is now carrying your attache case as you run? <laughs> well, well, we uh, we have a great group of uh, of young people that are helping us out. No one, no one's carrying the luggage, right? <laughs> but uh, 
we got a lot of people calling delegates, hosting meet and greets, um, helping helping us uh, stuff envelopes and do all all that work for a campaign. We had a huge team helping collect signatures, uh, which was uh, which was definitely hard work, uh, especially in the era of COVID. So we got got a lot of got a lot of uh, help, and I'm really blessed to have a really exciting team. And if people want to join it, uh, they can sign up at ericluster.com. Excellent. And with that. Thank you for joining us today, both to the audience and to Senator Lesser as well, for a terrific conversation. This is Peter Jay, and for Nick Remesong, Chris Wolf, Dr. Natalie Alinos, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, and Representative Jeff Roy on the Hill. Thank you all for joining us today as we journey forth on our continuing path toward a more perfect union. This is Franklin Public Radio.